This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Today, Marcus and I are going to take the time to reflect on the life of John Lewis and to revisit a previous conversation with Dr. William Turner, exploring the idea of we and what it means to live in community. We're glad that you're joining us today for these conversations. It's been wonderful to be back. As we've said, Marcus and I are at home using this new mode of communication called Zoom. I'm comfortably sitting in my uh, my home office. Marcus, tell us again where you yeah, are. Yeah, I'm 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 comfortably situated in my home office, and I have to say that you know this 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 working from home thing is is growing on me. So uh, <laughs> we're we're, is... we're quickly becoming Zoom experts right? yeah <laughs> yeah i'm growing i'm growing surprisingly comfortable with this so we'll see yeah and as we think about you all our listeners the one thing that we want to say is we hope that all of you are well and staying healthy especially as we go through this covid this covid crisis and that everyone is doing well but it will be great be great when we have the opportunity to kind of reconnect in person with uh with each other again but we're glad that we've had this opportunity to reconnect with you all this way and are so grateful for the feedback that we've we've already received, Marcus, from many of our listeners who are listening to and listen to the first show that we did from home. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So we had one. We had a note. Got a note from Deborah Lewis Smith, and Deborah, you know, I want to just appreciate her being an audience as we do all of all of our listeners. And one thing she did bring up, Marcus, that I want to bring up here in the note that she sent, she reminded me the fact that we're right now t- doing the uh, 2020 census and said she, she uh, asked if it might be possible for us to say something about it. And I wanted to take a moment just to remind everybody that this is an important uh, an important uh, process that we go through every 10 years is mandated by the U.S. Constitution. And if you haven't filled out the census, you should. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the census plays a big role in determining um, uh, resource allocation at the federal level. Um, it's also important, important in terms of political representation, right? It so is. in terms of, um, you know, uh, who shows up in Congress that represents you and your particular district, right. uh, your particular area, your particular region, um, the census becomes crucial. So it's it definitely does. worth taking the time to uh, complete. To fill it out. And I've been yeah. working with the Buncombe County uh, Complete uh, Census um complete count uh, census committee and um, and they're making real good strides, especially here in, in Buncombe County in Asheville, where we are to um, to make sure that we get a really good number of people who participate in the census this year. Mm-hmm. And Marcus, you mentioned how it is, uh, how it's important for resource allocation. Me as a historian, it becomes very, it becomes very, very important that information that's gathered for scholars and for future scholars to look Absolutely. back on this time. I have had the opportunity of using the census in my own research. Then I think also markets of genealogists. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. who do genealogy. The census becomes very important for that work, that reconnecting with the past, understanding mm-hmm. some of the, uh, the things that have happened in the past and the experiences of some of our ancestors. Yeah. And so, you know, the census is important on a number of levels. And also it's just, it's also a way of um, formally marking your presence in this country, <laughs> right? Um, of, of documenting the fact that yes, I am here. We are here. Uh, you know, we are a part of this, um, this, this, uh, this nation, and you know, we we need to be counted as well and taken so, and, and taken into consideration when it comes to again resource allocation, political representation. 
and the like. So again, we want to take take the time to thank Deborah for reminding us of that, and and want to again encourage you all to participate in the census. We also got a note from Doug Orr, who was a guest on the show, and many here in our region will recognize that name, uh, Doctor Douglas Orr, and he sent us a note, Marcus, and I have to refer to his note because he said in his note that he was uh, out on a walk on his morning hike, had the opportunity to listen to our show last Friday. Friday morning at nine o'clock when it aired in that new time slot for the first time. And he said it was just absolutely wonderful to hear you guys back on the air. Thanks for bringing your friends, Marcus. He said, uh, the Tocqueville, Baldwin, and MLK. And I was thinking to myself, where else can you get those, all of those people in one, one good hour of a yeah. show? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I, I attribute that to how you and I have been trained as scholars. You know, one of the, one of the, um, I guess I would consider it both a, a Bain, a boon and a bane um, of our lives as scholars is that, you know, we're, we're trained to make connections where connections may not be otherwise obvious. Right. And so we're constantly thinking about and perceiving the world in a connective way. And making and I think, those connections. And, yeah. and I think that's precisely why, you know, you can encounter all of these different figures, the Tocqueville, Baldwin, Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. Malcolm X, um, others, within the context of one single hour-long conversation right, between right. you and I. Yeah. So it was great to hear. It's great to hear from all yeah. of you. Great to hear from Doug and all of our friends out there. And once again, we want to hope that you all are doing well and staying healthy. But as we jump into this conversation, Marcus, you and I, as we were talking about today's show, we wanted to take the time to think about uh, Congressman John Lewis, who recently passed away, and um, and his life. I mean, what a remarkable life. I um did post something up on my Facebook page about him, you know, just saying, you know, this is in honor of a man who was a true warrior for justice and freedom. And he really was because he was on the front line mm-hmm. um, in, in that effort in the late 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, you know, running SNCC, uh, working directly with Martin Luther mm-hmm. King. I mean, just a just a remarkable, remarkable life and career that he had. Yeah, and this is a man born in Troy, Alabama, I believe, in 1940. Um, So deep, deep roots in the deep south. Mm -hmm. Um, As we know, uh, you mentioned that he was a warrior for justice and freedom. Um, One of the things he's uh, he's he's known for having endured is um, being, you know, having his his skull literally cracked open Mm -hmm. during those uh, those Selma to Montgomery marches in 1965. Mm -hmm. He endured that, persevered. Um, and something else about John Lewis, a statement that he made that really sticks in my mind, um, has to do with the idea of freedom, mm-hmm. right? Liberty, which you and I have discussed in, in prior shows. Uh, and John Lewis um, at one point stated that, um, that freedom is not a state. Freedom is an act. Right, right, um, and and I think some, and I think it's important for us to understand um, the distinction that Lewis is making because sometimes I think it's very easy to slip into this idea, this this concept of freedom, as this sort of utopic condition mm-hmm. that we strive to achieve, and once we get there, we can sort of take a breath and 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 stop stop striving, stop struggling. No, I think what what Lewis was telling us in that statement, I think what his life demonstrates is that freedom is a kind of struggle. 
It is. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing processional process. struggle. Right. Right. And I'm also I'm also reminded in connection to this to that statement made by John Lewis of something that um, the late uh, and very well-known black liberation theologian James Cone s- said about freedom in, in, uh, in an interview. And that is that, well, two things. Um, freedom isn't free, <laughs> right? There is a cost, <laughs> right? A very serious cost associated with the attainment of freedom. And the other point that Cone made is that nobody's going to give you freedom. You have to take it, take it right. right. Hence this notion that freedom is this sort of ongoing struggle that requires a kind of vigilance, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I this, think that John Lewis's life is, is, is very much reflective of this, this action oriented, um, um, struggle focused conception of freedom. Right. And Marcus, that puts him really strongly in the, tr- in the tradition of a Frederick Douglass, because Douglass would, would, would oh, argue yeah. the same thing about freedom and what it means. And as, as a historian who, uh, especially who works uh, as a specialty in the late 19th century and looking at the, at the period of reconstruction, which we're kind of in that sesquicentennial of that moment yeah. right now. Um, and it is very interesting to watch the conversations that are happening at this moment, this kind of redirecting our restructuring of the of our larger collective narrative, our challenge to what that narrative has been in the past, mm-hmm. to think about this this moment that we're in. This is the sesquicentennial of what would have been a reconstruction. But is entry one of the questions as a historian or as scholars of that period that we deal with is what that freedom mean and these different Mm. definitions and meanings of freedom. And I've had students who kind of, who have, you know, when you bring that up uh, initially, they kind of look at you because it's with kind of strange eyes as if Mm. they don't know exactly what it is that you're saying, because isn't freedom just what it is? (laughs) No, but it has different meanings because clearly we look at the late 19th century or if we look at the period that John Lewis struggled through, um, their conception of freedom was much different from the powers that be. Right. Very good point. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think about this is this is a very interesting point, because I think there is a way in which um, we're socialized in America or we're conditioned to think that freedom is something that is just self-evident. It doesn't mm-hmm. really require any careful explication or parsing because it, it, it just, as you said, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. But once you begin to sort of study the history of how freedom has been talked about, and then I would also say enacted, we begin to see, as you're pointing out, um, different conceptions of freedom, different ideas of freedom. So, for example, if you think about the American Revolution, right, this was, um, this was a struggle uh, to, to escape British tyranny, mm-hmm. right, um, British political oppression. Um, this, was, this was, I would say, an enactment of freedom or a will to freedom that was very much rooted in this, in an idea or belief in, in sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. Achieving national sovereignty, independent of, of British political authority, right? So that's one conception of freedom. I think to sort of fast forward things a little bit and, and, and think about what freedom meant within the context of the civil rights movement and John Lewis's life, freedom had a lot more to do, um, I think, with... Um, 
full participation in American society, right? right? Um, having the, the, the right to vote, being able to exercise the right to vote. Um, integration was a part of Lewis's conception of freedom. Equality, of course, social equality, political equality, you know, being, uh, having the, the, the ability to, um, to gain political office, um, to participate in the legislative process. Mm -hmm. This, I think, is the conception of freedom that uh, toward which civil rights activists worked and, and towards which John Lewis worked. But, but again, I, I, think these, I think juxtaposing these two examples illustrates your point that, that freedom is, is, is actually a, a multi-layered concept. Mm -hmm. And what it means has everything to do with the person invoking the idea right, of freedom. Right, right, right. So, and John, and I, and and also in thinking about John, John Lewis's life, Marcus, I can't help but but think about and appreciate, and I think we have to address the fact that he had faith in the American experiment. Right. Mm. Because he was willing to get in there and move the needle, move the ball. I mean, what are we to make of that faith in the American experience? And he was also willing to make the sacrifices to actually broaden the reach of freedom. Mm. Um, and this is part of the argument that many people have made about the process of American history. And I can't help but think, Marcus, here about uh, the founding fathers themselves. Um, and I mean, they laid the cornerstone, I would say, of, of, of freedom in this country when they wrote into the Declaration of Independence this idea that all men are created equal, endowed mm -hmm. by the creator with certain unalienable or inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We talked about Martin Luther King in 1963 of making a statement about that, of calling it a check that they had come to cash. Think about John Lewis that day at that moment. I think he was the, he was the youngest speaker at the at the March on Washington in uh, 1963, but there was a, an enduring faith in that idea, and th to them that was what the American experiment was all about. It was about moving that ball, moving that needle, um, and so. You know, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from that enduring faith that he had in this experiment that uh, was begun, as we, if we want to argue, in, in 1776. Mm. And it will be interesting to think about the, the, the source of Lewis's faith in the American experiment and in, in the American experiment. Where did it come from? How was he able to summon faith in the American experiment when he's having his skull cracked open mm -hmm. by state troopers and, and, and in Alabama and continuing to believe this. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, that, that faith in, in many ways w it was a religious faith because we know that um, even very early in his life, um, even as a young boy growing up in Troy, Alabama, um, John Lewis wanted to be a preacher, mm -hmm. right? Um, in fact, there's, it, it's known that he used to, uh, he used to preach to chickens, right? So right, chickens right. were his, sort of his, his congregation. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think I think that that um, that sort of biblical uh, notion of faith um, is is probably very much at work in in Lewis's faith in the American experiment. Right, right. And and to me, it's it's, it's very interesting in a comparative uh, sense to juxtapose. Lewis's faith in the American experiment 
with James Baldwin cynicism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> around the American experiment because there was there was there's there's a very interesting um interview that James Baldwin um gives uh with Dick Cavett um many years ago. Um and you know where Cavett is sort of just asking he's talking to Baldwin about the condition of the Negro mm-hmm. in, in America. And one of the interesting points that Baldwin makes uh, over the course of this conversation is that, um, you know, and I think this pertains to uh, the American experiment and to, you know, uh, and, and to the whole question of perhaps of, um, of, of whether or not African-Americans should buy into it. Mm-hmm. But Baldwin makes the point that, you know, white people should not assume that African-Americans necessarily see America, America as the pinnacle of civilization. You're right, right. Um, the, the white people should, shouldn't assume necessarily um, that, that black people have absolutely nothing to teach them about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the case that, um, that, that, that black people over the course of the, the violence that they've endured um, as the American experiment unfolded, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the case that black people have evolved another sense of being. Mm-hmm. Another another sense of reality mm-hmm. that white America can learn from, right? right. And so I, I just find it really interesting to to bring together um, by means of sort of comparative um, analysis analysis and reflection. Mm-hmm. I think Lewis's faith faith in the American experiment, which I, I would argue is also re- reflects a faith in the ideals of the so-called founding fathers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. With James Baldwin's rugged cynicism. Right, right. Uh, in the, in, in, in the, um, in the, the, the authenticity or the, or the, um, the sincerity of those, of those founding ideals. And I think that that makes for a very rich and nuanced way or, or approach um, to thinking about freedom. Right. right. And I think, Marcus, as well, uh, the point that you make here about this, you know, what are we to make of this enduring faith in the American experiment? I believe in you, you know, connecting this to a, a religious sensibility in John Lewis. Also, to me, it seems that that faith in the American experiment transcended just being an American. It it was about being a human being. So there's a transcendency that I think that you can sense in, in many of the things and the work that John Lewis did over the course of his life. He believed, Marcus, he gave a speech up in um, at Harvard University. He was the graduation speaker there a few years ago. And he, he talked about the fact that, look, we, we have made progress when, and I think it's hard for us sometimes to see that we've made progress because we, uh, as Americans, we tend to live so much so in the moment, right? <clears throat> and as a historian, I'm always arguing that there's something that we can learn of value by looking back and looking at people like John Lewis and what it is that they came through, looking at the, uh, the experiences of our own fathers and grandfathers and what the world looked like and especially their communities mm. and their society at that time and how they did move the needle. So I would argue that it's incumbent upon us now to think about what do we want to do over the course of our lifetime to continue to move the needle, to broaden the reach and the scope of freedom. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and it's, I, I think this connects to, to, to prior conversations that, that we've had, but this need to uh, remain to this need to understand um, 
the past, this need to, the, the importance of understanding the past, the importance of connecting to the aims of ancestors like John Lewis, mm-hmm. who were working to, as you put it, move the needle, working mm-hmm. um, to affect a certain type of, um, of social change. And something that comes to mind uh, with respect to connecting to the past in this way um, has to do with, uh, again, sort of allowing the past to, in, in a critical way, in a critical mm-hmm. way, not, not romanticizing or idealizing the past, but learning from it in a way that informs the present and what we can do moving forward. And so, right. so w- when I think about the civil rights movement, when I think about civil rights ideology, when I think about the aims of the civil rights, you know, what comes to, of, of the civil rights movement, what really comes to mind for me um, uh, are... <clears throat> integration, mm-hmm. inclusion, right? Um, at the uh, e- economic level, the social level, the political level, equality, mm-hmm. inequality, right? Um, and to your earlier point, recognition of humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so those four things, at least I think, uh, were definitive of the civil rights era. Right. Um, were I to to point to something that was either missing or less emphasized um, in that era, um, I would point to power, right? A focus on on really a, a very sort of uncompromising focus on 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 the, the the need, the importance of black communities cultivating lasting economic and political power in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it may be that, you know, we're, we're now at a point in the black freedom struggle where that can become a more salient, more unapologetic focus, right? Um, the, 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 the goal of integration, um, I, it, you know, there's legislation now that, outlaw segregation, right? <laughs> um, the Voting Rights Act is in place, although, you know, we can talk about efforts that have been underway for years since the passage of the Voting Rights Act to suppress um, um, the, the vote, especially the black vote. But at least that, that act is in place. Right. Um, so it seems to me that some of the aims of the civil rights movement um, or the needle that, that was trying to be moved, as you put it, that needle has been moved somewhat. Mm-hmm. But maybe now we're at a moment where uh, you know, we can acknowledge that um, while also focusing in a much more in a much more um, provocative way mm-hmm. on, on, on the importance of really taking up the goal of power. Right. Right. Um, within the black freedom struggle. Right. And I think in, in Marcus, as we've, we've talked about that before, we, it's a central piece to this building of power, I think, will be that it will have to be done in a way in building coalitions, right? Mm-hmm. So this gets us back again to this question of who are we and who do we mm-hmm. wish to be? And I cannot help you but think of the, that does, I know, <laughs> and as, as you all in the, in the audience are listening to this conversation, you know, it, it's been great to hear from you all and to hear you all talk about this whole idea of we and thinking about it differently, 
because I can't help but think that these were, were central questions that helped to move John Lewis over the course of his life. He was constantly thinking about who are we and who do we wish to be and moving the ball that way. Um, I wonder if we had the opportunity to sit down and talk to John Lewis, how would he respond to those questions? And I think we can get a sense of that, you know, Marcus, from the life that he lived. So thinking about that, it is food for thought. We wanted to take this moment. We needed to take this moment to honor this man who was a giant. And we owe a great deal of gratitude to him and that generation for the work that they did to move us to where we are today. Yeah. And um, there was a there was a piece written about John Lewis recently. Uh, I can't recall if it was in the Washington Post or the Atlantic was one of those two. I think it was I want to say it was the Washington Post. Um, But but in this in this article, the 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 point was made that uh, John Lewis and also the Reverend C.T. Vivian um played played a a, a very um a very chief role a very important role a very key role in america's so-called quote-unquote third founding mm-hmm. right this the, you know this was the language used um in, in the piece that i'm that i'm referencing here um and what was meant there was that uh lewis uh ct vivian vivian and others um really were at the forefront of forging an America that was both in word and in deed and into a truly interracial democracy, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in, in, in previous years, that really wasn't the case, even though there, there may have been rhetoric bandied about uh, that was intended to, to give the impression that, yeah, we're, we're actually an interracial democracy. Uh, the point here was that Lewis's career um, went a long way towards aligning um, the American legal institutions with the goal of, of America becoming an interracial democracy. Right. right. And so I, I think I, th- that's another takeaway, I think, another major takeaway from John Lewis's Lewis legacy. And, and, and I would argue that this civil rights legacy um, at the macro level, right, participating in this sort of this, this, this third founding mm-hmm. of the United States mm-hmm. as an interracial democracy. Now, now, could we critique that? Yes, absolutely. But, right. <laughs> but, but I think that that is a thing that we can mm-hmm. point to um, in association with John Lewis's uh, life and legacy. Absolutely. So again, Marcus and I want to remind you, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. If you're just now joining us, coming to you from Blue Ridge Public Radio, we have been having a conversation about the life and legacy of John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, who recently passed away, but over the course of his life gave so much of his time and his energy um, to helping to move the boundaries of freedom. And so what are we going to do to kind of continue to take up that legacy ourselves as we move forward as a nation, as a state, and as a local community. So another thing Marcus and I wanted to talk about, because we recently, and I think, Marcus, this this connects with um, thinking about John Lewis's life, that we recently had a conversation with Dr. William Turner. Had him as a guest. We didn't talk that much about his background. He has a very interesting background over the course of uh, his, his life. Um, he was another one of those people in the, the civil rights uh, era who was out there on the front lines. Um, I remember that I believe that on the night that uh, Martin Luther King was uh, was killed, he was called upon, I think, at the University of Kentucky to actually give a speech to a very large body uh, of people, students there, um, to talk about, you know, 
how we move forward as a nation. Bill has given his, uh, his, his time and his energy, not only to teaching and training other scholars and teaching students, which he continues to do at 74 years of age. He is still out there mentoring uh, younger scholars. But he, um, as well, you know, he was willing to be out there protesting, protesting things that he did not find to be just. One was this mural uh, that is at the University of Kentucky, which, you know, uh, it has been in the news uh, lately because there is an effort, especially by students that have this mural, uh, which depicts American history or the history of the state of Kentucky. And it's these, these what many would call racist, racist depictions of people of color in this mural. Well, Bill was doing that when he was a student there at University of <laughs> Kentucky. And and I'm sure, Marcus, after getting to know Bill, you're not surprised not that surprised he was one of these guys. I'm the slightest, not, not the slightest. You know, and I, I think that very much aligns um, with, with I, I would argue that, that that history in Bill's life of advocating on behalf of racial justice, being involved in the civil rights movement, um, speaking to this body um, of students um, after Martin Luther King's assassination is very much in line, I would argue, with his scholarly career, mm -hmm. right? Because when you, when, when you, when you think about um, the book for which he probably is most known, Blacks in Appalachia, um, this, was, this, this was a major intervention. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Absolutely. In, in, Absolutely. In the, in the, and I would even argue a somewhat subversive one as well within the broader field of American history and even within the, the, the subfield, I would argue, of, um, of Southern history. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as, as, as uh, Dr. Turner pointed out, um, uh, or as was suggested in the, in the previous show, the, the prevailing uh, notion prior to that book's appearance was that, well, Blacks weren't really in southern in, in southern Appalachia and, and or or West North Carolina. You know, they they there was there wasn't a significant presence of, of black presence there, and so there isn't much 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 history to to speak of with respect to that particular region. You're and right. and and brother, I can't help but be and thinking about that. I can't help but be but to be reminded of what Carter G. Woodson was told mm -hmm. when he when he made known to one of his professors at Harvard that he wanted to study African-American history. He was told what? Blacks have no history to history speak of. So that's it. Right. And so, and so here we have, you know, Carter G. Woodson making this really sort of radical intervention in American history um, that we now know as African-American history. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, uh, we see uh, Bill Turner making another major intervention um, around the history of Blacks in Appalachia. In Appalachia. And right. so I, I think that's just very much in line with his, 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 the, the kind of, I, I would, I would consider, consider it a kind of radicalism right, that is. we see in him even as a student. It is interesting because yeah. I know our listeners enjoyed that conversation with Bill. Anyone who has the opportunity to hear him speak, we've had him here in the city at the university at UNC Asheville before to speak there. He's participated in the conference that I, I host uh, and we host at UNC Asheville each year, the African-Americans in Western North Carolina Conference. And Bill, um, you know, he's just a brilliant speaker and talking about this, this one theme from that conversation with him of talking about 
the life and the presence of African-Americans in Southern Appalachia. He completely, through that work, Marcus, turned this idea of Black invisibility or there not being a Black presence in Southern Appalachia on his head. He did that work with Ed Cabell. We want to give Dr. Um, Ed Cabell uh, his due for uh, working with Dr. Turner to produce that book in 1985. But as we're talking about John Lewis and the civil rights movement, so much is being said in this conversation about the civil rights movement. Marcus, it's interesting to think because one of the articles are, that was included in that anthology in 1985 was on the civil rights movement in Southern Appalachia. And one of the questions that uh, was raised was um, Southern Appalachia the place that the civil rights movement missed? And brothers, we think about as we think about where we are, not only in our own local community and what we're seeing, this kind of upheaval that is taking place. Um, it would be interesting. We didn't have the opportunity <clears throat> to ask Bill specifically about that particular essay in that anthology, but it would be interesting to see what his response to it would be. So it is great. It was great to hear those stories, to, to hear stories about he, he told stories, not that it was great to hear these stories about poverty, but it gave us a sense of, mm -hmm. of the struggle that many people in the region have had because he talked about his own family and the poverty in his own family because I think he's the first in his family to have gone to college. Mm -hmm. And he's told the story over and over again about how his father, who was a coal miner, grandfather who was coal miner, you know, was thinking, oh, you don't need to go. You know, you can stay here with me. He's told a story about his father. Just stay here and fish and, and spend time <laughs> fishing with me, Bill. But yeah. he went off to college and actually has, has made this life for himself, which um, I know has to be a big treat for his own grandchildren. But Mark, mm -hmm. Marcus, thinking about uh, this issue of poverty. You know, Bill addressed it as, as an issue that, that does not just touch African-Americans, yeah. but also touches people across the racial divide in places like Southern Appalachia, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I, just, just, just to go back quickly to a point that Bill made that really, really struck me around this whole question of the Black presence in, 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 in Appalachia, Southern Appalachia, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to just remind our listeners that, you know, that, that Bill makes the point that, you know, the, the black presence in America and Appalachia predates 1619. Mm -hmm. Right. So Bill. So Bill took it all the way back to 1526. Mm -hmm. Right. Where Africans traveled with conquistadors. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, according to historical records to the North American landmass. Right. So, so the so the presence in that. So, so the black presence in Appalachia. Um, is very, very old. It's centuries, centuries old, right? right? Uh, but anyway, so just to, to, to remind uh, listeners of that, but this issue of poverty um, that, that you're raising and on both, on, on, on both um, or across racial lines, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a part of Bill's story. Um, it's a part of, of the story of many white families coming out out of Appalachia. Um, and one of the articles that you and I both uh, both read for today, brother, has to do with the relationship between, and this is a more contemporary issue, mm -hmm. between the opioid crisis in Appalachia right. and poverty. 
And so, brother, I'm sure you want to say a few things about that. About that <laughs> well, piece yeah, in the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Right. In the Atlantic, there was an article. And we highly encourage you all to go out and grab a copy mm-hmm. of the of the Atlantic. I think it was the May issue of the Atlantic, or June. It was the June issue mm-hmm. of the Atlantic. There's a story in there about a, a girl, um, 20, she's 28 years old, a woman named Nikki King now. And the story, Marcus, what strikes me about this story is not only the work that she's doing to help address the opioid crisis, uh, in rural communities, mm-hmm. she, there's a hope that she will come back. She grew up in East Kentucky, where Bill Patrick was County. from. That's right, uh, not too far from where Bill was from. Mm-hmm. Um, but she tells a story about how her family—it was her grandmother who instilled in her this idea that you need to go away and go to college. Um, but her grandmother ended up dying um, prior to when she was nine years old. But she mm-hmm. she still lived, you know, out the rest of her life. Being at the top of her her um, her class uh, as a student, uh, 4.0 GPA, but she tells the story about how her grandfather, uh, Curtis King, I believe his name, had no idea what the meaning of an AP course was, that he thought that that meant that she was taking classes because she was mentally challenged, but she's taking these. So it gives you an idea of of just how this issue of poverty touches the white community in in this region as well mm-hmm. but the story of how she made the decision to leave even mm-hmm. though she struggled she struggled with leaving her grandfather because he had never le- lived alone in in his life but she just knew that she needed to take that grandmother's advice to go away and she had to go to college she was willing to struggle marcus when i read that story um and she didn't have the money, but she applied for scholarships. She's worked through that. She's now become a, a major force in the area of healthcare mm-hmm. uh, in in Indiana, hoping to go back to uh, back to her home state of Kentucky. But Marcus, it reminded me of the stories of both Carter G. Woodson and Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. because if you read their stories and about their struggle to actually get an education, yeah. as Bill talked about education, how education was seen as the door to those opportunities that people were trying to get to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's so much to say there. Um, one thing that comes to mind for me in thinking about Booker T. Washington's story and Carter G. Wilson's story and their, their commitment to, to, or their willingness to suffer in order to acquire an education. Mm-hmm. Um, a question that emerges for me is- A lot is, like what you said about freedom. Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely, right. absolutely, absolutely. But a question for me is where, where does that willingness to suffer for, to educate the mind, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where does it come from? Um, because I, I have to say, it, it's, it's not something that I encounter often today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, um, anywhere. I mean, e- even in the, even in college classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, and I think it has to do with the point that you're making about how education was perceived mm-hmm. in that era among right. black communities. It was seen, it was seen as a kind of, um, as a kind of pathway um, toward citizenship, mm-hmm. a pathway toward a, a better life, mm-hmm. a better standard of living, um, a pathway um, through which one could bring one's family um, into a more, a more stable, more respectable uh, life, a pathway through which one could access perhaps um, the, 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 the political levers of American power 
etc etc um and i think in the case of in the case of nikki young coming out of letcher county in eastern kentucky doing work now i believe in ripley county in indiana rural indiana um it's possible that maybe she was perceiving education in in a similar way, way at a very young way at a very young age even though she was she grew up sort of mired in a community that was just decimated by the right, opioid crisis right, right. um there was there was something in here in her um there was something in her that that developed the will to educate herself so that she could so that she could respond in a constructive way to the opioid crisis in rural america and so now she has this program i think it's in it's in Indi- in rural indiana um, I believe it's called CADS, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Courts Addiction and Drug Services. And so, right. and as far as I, um, as far as I can tell, there really is no other program like this in the country. It is truly right. innovative in terms of responding to the opioid crisis. And, and I would argue to some degree, mental health. Right. In the country, right. Absolutely. So, and, and, and it seems to me that the program is tailored to, to help, um, the judges to help the court system, understand addiction more so as a disease mm-hmm. than just a deviant choice right i'm not saying that choice isn't a factor mm-hmm. but but often you know drug addiction in this country is seen as just a deviant choice right so you know in the american imagination people who make deviant choices need to be put in jail right right <laughs> right right and it, 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 just emphasis on put in jail um less emphasis on rehabilitated right and, or, and, or, 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 or given access to resources and programs that can help help them treat this disease. Right. Right. And so, you know, I, Nikki King's story, I mean, it, it's it's the story, I think, of just raw willpower. It is. And also and also innovation. Right. And in the fact that she's from Southern Appalachia, you couldn't help but think about that in context with the conversation that we had with with Dr. Turner, with Bill, yeah. uh, because there because another theme that emerges that emerges from that conversation with Bill and um, is also that we do. I think sometimes, Marcus, we struggle with this idea, but we do have a shared experience, a shared history. And Bill mm-hmm. talked about that. Because there was a major question in the course of that conversation that, I, that that you brought up about your own struggle of trying to understand where it is that we are today, what we're witnessing, you know, as an outgrowth of the protests that emerged after the death and after the murder of George Floyd. You know, what are we to make of the the interracial nature of these protests because in southern appalachia bill was talking about that he wrote about it in a in a piece that he did for the daily yonder mm-hmm. um talking about how he was so it was a pleasure to be able to see as a 74 year old african-american who's been a part of the struggle to be able to see so many members of the white community younger white generations come out and be on the front lines in these most recent protests. So there's this shared experience and Bill talked about that. And he, he alluded to the fact, Marcus, that this is a long, it has a long history. There's a long history and tradition of this in Southern Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting piece of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about the, this long history in Southern Appalachia, you know, I, I think about, I, and, and brother, you may say I'm going back too far, but um, but 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 you have only yourself to blame for me doing this because you taught okay. me to have a long view. <laughs> but 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 I, I go back, for example, to Western North Carolina, to that region, before 1865. 
And so what do we so what do we see there? So we see a less than 10 percent of the of the black population being enslaved. And we see that 90 percent of whites prior to 1865 did not own slaves. Mm -hmm. They were non-slave owners. Mm -hmm. What's also happening at that time. And, and this definitely extends beyond 1865, um, are, are whites in Southern Appalachia, in this part of, 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 uh, of North Carolina, um, uh, being very suspicious of the institution of slavery itself, mm -hmm. right? Thinking that, you know, ooh, you know, this, if this thing really goes nationwide, this could, this could begin to look a lot like Imperial Britain. Right, so here we have whites making a connection between the institution of American chattel slavery and British imperialism, mm -hmm. British tyranny. Right, mm -hmm. um, and and again, that 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 connection, that critique is happening among white white Southern Appalachians mm -hmm. in the nineteenth century. Right, um, and as Carter G. Wilson has pointed is pointed out in his own work. Um, you know, during this period, during during this, this is this is after 1865, 19th century. Um, it wasn't it was not uncommon in this part of the state to, you know, to see not only blacks and whites working together very, um, very amicably um, in a very uh, uh, friendly, caring way. Um, but. It, it was also the case that that while while many of these whites were very critical of of the institution of slavery, right, and in fact they even loathed it, some historians have argued. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what many of them did not loathe was the humanity of their black counterparts. Uh, right, 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 right. And again, this is happening in Southern Appalachia, mm -hmm. um, in West North Carolina, and so it, it's it's within that broader historical context, I think, that that. Bill Turner is making this observation uh, relative to Eastern Kentucky and the whites involved in the Black Lives Matter protest there. He's mm -hmm. saying, look, this is a part of a long, <laughs> a long, long tradition, tradition right. in this particular region All right. of whites being involved um, in a way that in a way that that is defined by genuine relationship. Mm -hmm. with black people right you know because and, and see that to me really is the is is the key factor you know are whites involved simply because it it it, it is at the moment the fashionable thing to do mm -hmm. or or are they involved because they have forged genuine relationships, relationships. with the, the 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 black individuals who are involved in these protests right and i think from from bill turner's vantage point many of them have forged relationships mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. why they're involved now right. are, are, are there some who are just doing it because it's trendy absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. right but 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 we can't assume that that's the case for all you're absolutely right. And so, again, we just want to take a moment to remind you again that this is the Waters and Harvey show at Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're having a great conversation about the conversation that we had with Dr. Bill Turner and some of the themes that came out of that conversation. One about Southern Appalachia, his his birth, his nativity in that region, how the region actually shaped his experiences as an African-American, turning he through 
through his work, he's turned on its head the idea that there wasn't much of an African-American uh, presence in this region that we know as Southern Appalachia. He also addressed, as Marcus was just saying, this issue of a shared experience, um, shared experience in poverty. We talked about Nikki King, who is doing this remarkable work. Marcus, you ended that last segment by talking about relationships. And you and I have had a conversation of saying, okay, genuine relationships, taking the time to build those relationships really is what it is, what it takes to build this sense of community that you and I have, have talked about. Mm -hmm. We talked about, okay, you know, what does it mean to be a community? Um, and how does that, how is that shaped? Do are we building genuine relationships with each other? What does it take to build those relationships to get to know people as human beings? And it's interesting if I could re-reference re that were uh, that article in the Atlantic on Nikki. What has made her program so effective in rural Indiana is the fact that judges are no longer judges and prosecutors are no longer looking at people who are struggling through this issue of of the opioid crisis as just these people. People who are brought in front of the courts are as people who are struggling with these things. They're seeing them as real human beings. And because she is helping to develop relationships between the judges and the prosecutors and the people who are in this program. And it was interesting to hear the one judge say that he can no longer just walk into court and send someone back if they have a relapse at some point, but to come up with some type of plan that will help them work through that because mm -hmm. you're seeing them in a very different way as human beings. And Marcus, you and I know as we look at the African-American history and the experience, one of the major struggles of people of color, of black people in this country, and not just of African-Americans, but Native Americans as well, Latin, the members of the Latinx community is is the struggle to be counted as human beings, right? Yeah, and and to my mind, um, a major tool in that struggle is story, mm -hmm. personal narrative. What is the story? What is this person's story? And I think in the case of, of Nikki King and the work that she's doing, in the case of the judges that, that you just mentioned, um, these judges are, are able in, in these various cases to, to, to build relationships um, with, with recovering opioid addicts mm -hmm. precisely because they have become acquainted with their story. Mm -hmm. So what that tells us is that, and I've, I've made this, I've suggested this previously, what that tells us is that story, so story isn't just um, a pathway toward community. Before we get to community, I would argue, story gets us to relation to, to relationship. Right. It's right. through the it's through so so you so you raise the issue of what it takes to build relationship. I would argue that one of the one of the one of the principal ingredients of building relationship is the sharing of story. You have to you have to be you have to be willing to share story, and then. Uh, those uh, with whom the story is being shared must be willing to listen to listen to what is being shared and then engage right. what is being shared and it 's through that that in, that 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 mutualistic ex exchange that that sharing and that engagement that I think is where relationship is birthed right. is birthed there and so mm -hmm. here again we really see story rushing to the forefront um, as as a key tool in the building of relationships. Um, 
were it not for the story of these recovering opioid addicts, their personal mm-hmm. story, um, I would even argue were it not for Nikki, Nikki King's own personal story, um, we wouldn't have courts in Ripley County, Indiana, for example, judges in courts um, uh, who rather than um, immediately sending uh, someone found guilty of opioid addiction to jail, right. um, making a decision instead of that to refer them to Nikki's program. Mm-hmm. Right. So Th- that that decision is being made because of relationships. Right. And, re- and those and those relationships exist because stories are being shared. Right. So listening to story, Mar- Marcus, I think that that is a very powerful point to make. And thinking about the story, if we can if we can take just a few minutes here to think about the larger national story, our larger national story, the narrative, because that was another theme that uh, Bill touched on. But I don't want to leave this conversation without Mm -hmm. also addressing the fact that in your struggle, because there was a question that you brought up to Bill that I think is important for us to remind ourselves of here was that, okay, when we we reconsider uh, George Floyd, uh, the the murder of George Floyd um, and how, okay, all of a sudden it has shaken and waken a nation. You ask Bill about that. Yeah. And Bill's response was to tell us what a story about the farmer and the mule. If you yeah. want to take it here, yeah. brother, because that yeah. was a powerful moment in that conversation with him. Yeah. And, and if I recall the story correctly, you know, there's a farmer and a mule, the mule doesn't want to work. And so um, in an effort to get the, and I'm, 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 I'm telling a truncated version of the story. So Bill, forgive me. <laughs> um, but uh, so in an effort to get, so in a, I guess in a kind of last resort effort to get the mule to work, to, to you know, wake up and, and do its job. Um, the farmer basically hits the mule over the head. With a two by four. Uh, with a two by four. <laughs> and that, that is what it took to, um, to, to get the mule in motion, to get the mule working. And Bill's point was that, you know, and, and uh, analogically was that, you know, it, it took specifically white America being smacked over the head with the two by four of George Floyd's public mm-hmm. execution. Right. In order to sort of galvanize this, this, this racial protest movement that is now a, a global racial justice uh, protest movement. Um, I would add this, though, um, to, to sort of complicate that, that a little bit more. And th- this is just my, my sort of theory. I, I think that, that another reason, one of the other reasons why George Floyd's public lynching, why his spectacle lynching galvanized uh, this kind of movement, is because th- the, the narrative of brutalized Black bodies is a dominant narrative in the American imagination. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, black bodies are the idea is that black bodies are innately criminalistic in nature. They're dangerous. They have to be policed. They have to be surveilled. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're they're subject to being brutalized. And that's OK as long as we don't see it. Mm-hmm. But once we see it, once you see it, um, it makes that narrative a little bit less tolerable. Is harder to tolerate now. Now right. we feel the need to respond to it, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things that I'm hoping comes out of this is that it is a critique of this dominant narrative of, of, 
of brutalized black male bodies, right, mm -hmm. that, that are in need of brutalization. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens as this, as this, as these right. movements continue to unfold. But anyway, here again, we see the power, uh, perhaps in a, in a both negative and positive way of story. Right. And it's, and it's interesting, Marcus, when we think about these movements that have, uh, that have occurred throughout our history, and Bill, Bill was talking about this as well, we have a tendency to fall back asleep like that mule. Right. Mm. To fall asleep. And the hope is that we won't need to be smacked in the head by with a two by four again to keep us galvanized and moving forward. Um, I've often compared uh, these movements and these moments to um, to what Ma uh, Muhammad Ali would do to his opponents. Right. The powers of be rope a dope the movement. Yep. So you let people kind of punch themselves out. And then once they're tired, okay, things will settle down and we'll go back to business as usual. This is kind of the, it has been a theme throughout American history. Mm. But then there've been those voices, voices that we've talked about today, who have been like the, uh, the prophet crying in the wilderness to keep moving us ahead. John Lewis was one of those people who we no longer have. Uh, Bill Turner has been one of those people. And we have among us today. But I hope that what we will have is people's attention, that there will be some intentionality about how we are building what we're talking about here, building community, that we will be more reflective about what what the goals of our our society, our country, were said to have been. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, we mentioned him as one of those people who had this unique ability as a leader to look both forward and backward mm -hmm. and actually understand what it is that would that they instituted in 1776 or began in 1776 and seeing the Civil War as a moment that provided the opportunity to move the ball, to move mm -hmm. it closer to that. There were others. Mm -hmm. We could reference many other people uh, in that early history. But Marcus, what I'm hoping is that it won't take another two by four in the head to get our attention after we've gotten beyond this particular period that we're in now. Yeah, and what, what, I, what, what I will say as, we wrap up, as you wrap up here is that uh, I, I wish that I could share I wish that I shared in John Lewis's faith in the American experiment, <laughs> but, but I find myself drifting more towards Baldwin's cynicism. Um, maybe that'll change in time. Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it, but, uh, but, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe, maybe through relationships somehow, maybe, maybe through the forging of additional relationships, uh, my cynicism will diminish mm -hmm. um, you and or, I... wane, or wane over time. But yeah. Time and I've, you know, and I'm I'm not too uh, in agreement with you that you will end up in that camp with, with Baldwin <laughs> because I have those personal conversations with you. I remain optimistic about where we're going, and I know that you do too, Marcus, because sometimes we'll just – for our listeners, you have to know that when we come into the studio to do the shows, Marcus leaves with a greater appreciation for the people that we interview because we've heard those stories. Mm -hmm. So the point that you made about story, I think it's important for us to think about as we move forward. Yeah. How do we know each other's stories? Are you willing to listen? Mm -hmm. Marcus, and I want to thank you for taking this time to join us again today on the show. We want to remind you again that the Waters and Harvey show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio here in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org on the BPR mobile app. 
um, on Apple Podcast and Google Play. Right, and you know that you can always follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And we know that you all are getting in touch and we really appreciate that. We hope that you'll continue to do that. We hope that between now and then, you'll listen to more people's stories, getting to know people, building this sense of community that we all want to see us have in a greater in a greater way as we move forward. Okay. So Marcus and I, again, thank you for joining us. We, we thank you for all of the, the feedback that you're giving us. We hope that everyone stays healthy and well, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Okay, take care.